Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Australian Bitcoin podcast. I'm Justin, your host for this episode. At the time of this recording, Bitcoin's block height is at 726,354, and the Bitcoin price in Australian dollars is 53,066. Today, I'm joined by Daniel and Jeremy from hardblock.com.au, Australia's first and oldest Bitcoin-only exchange. Today's episode will focus on a summary of recent global and Australian Bitcoin news. The first item is the SatSpend community-driven project, which is simply a list of all Australian businesses that accept Bitcoin. Currently, there are around 40 businesses on that list. I will link the uh, GitHub page in the show notes, and you can request any details to be added or changed on that GitHub if you run a business that accepts Bitcoin. I'll leave that there because there is some detail already online. It's just good to mention that and to give uh, Bitcoin businesses a bit more publicity. So the first two bits of news linked together, they're around Russia and Ukraine. So Russia has had some recent news regarding Bitcoin adoption, and there's a little bit further news along from when we last talked about that. So the proposed rules in Russia will see their citizens required to do an online test related to cryptocurrencies. If citizens pass that test, they can buy up to $7,700 of different types of cryptocurrencies each year. If they don't pass that test, they can only buy up to $650 per year. All the fiat on and off ramps, as in the exchanges, need to be licensed and have a full KYC of their customers. And all customer transactions after buying on an exchange are tracked by a thing called the transparent blockchain. So this is a little bit different to the way that most people would probably think that regulation is going to come about, where we have a, you know, access to freedom money per se, and that that's still the case, but it sounds like there's some hard limitations being put on it. So at the same time, the Ukraine has legalized Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, um, not as legal tender, but they are giving a little bit more clarity to exchanges and users how they need to go about when they buy, sell, or keep track of their Bitcoin in a way that gives them less scrutiny or makes them less scrutinized by regulators. So this is a good thing overall. It's intended to protect users against fraudulent service providers um, or scams. And it will also make things a little bit more attractive for entrepreneurs that are looking to build in the, the Bitcoin space. However, both of those seem like really good news uh, in the context of what's going on in, in Russia and Ukraine at the moment in regards to Russia's invasion of the Ukraine and uh, some of the weaponization of the financial systems. And all of this has a lot of implications for Bitcoin. So I'm, I'm curious, Daniel and Jeremy, if you have any thoughts on kind of what's going over there at the moment and... Yeah, yeah, I, I do have a lot of thoughts and that I wanted to share because I think this is actually potentially could be a very big event from an economic and perspective. I think it could have big ramifications and I think a lot of people don't appreciate the potential ramifications of it. So I just wanted to kind of share some of my thoughts. So I just want to kind of first explain what the situation is right now and just uh, the, the global, um, the broader situation. And uh, just for context, if you go back to 1998, there was the Russian debt crisis where Russia could not pay its debt. And at that point, it was much less integrated in the global economy. Its economy was much smaller. And, you know, I was very young back then, so I don't know all the details, but to my understanding, even then, there were, was a big risk 
and there were implications for the U.S. had to do and had to deal with that situation because there were implications globally of that crisis, and people were uh, worried about the about the global the implications of a global system and its integrity. Back in those days, obviously, most Western countries in the U.S. was running. United States was running a surplus. It had very low debt. It was on top of the world. Now, like if you look at the situation right now, we have the situation where Russia is probably the biggest global energy supplier. Mm. Not only energy, it produces a lot of base resources, fertilizer, wheat, uh, and many other resources. We have a situation of very high debt in most of the world, especially Western countries. We have a situation where there's already high supposedly transitory inflation. Mm. There, there was inflation, a lot of people were uh, betting that this inflation would go lower, like that it, it's pr probably going to be reduced because that it's a supply chain issues. And after the supply chain issues will be fixed, some of that inflation would go lower. You know, looking at the situation now, the supply chain issues are unlikely to get better mm. uh, the way the world is going. So obviously there's a lot of sanctions, a, a lot of things happening now. And um, the price of oil, I believe it reached over $300 a barrel. Mm. Uh, it's been skyrocketing. The stock markets are crashing. So you have high inflation, crashing stock markets. The high price of oil is probably generally have a negative impact on the economy because everything is energy, it can lead to recession. So if you have st crashing stock markets, high price of oil, there's the risk of recession globally, supply chain issues, the traditional response in the Western countries would be to start printing money, mm -hmm. money printing going <laughs> brr. Yeah. Um, but the problem is right now we are in, in a situation of high inflation already. Yes. And it looks like it's going to become even worse. So um, on top of that, there's even other issues to add to that. So again, I don't want to get into the moral kind of like breaking international law, Russia in breaking international law. But from, as I understand, the Western countries, United States have now frozen Russian uh, res currency reserves that were held in the West. Mm. As I understand it, that's actually also breaking international law, but forgetting about that, it, it does kind of send, send a precedent. Mm -hmm. It is kind of cr crossing a line that hasn't been crossed. We already had a, that line crossed in some ways in West, in Canada, with the banking, the bank protesters, banks being closed. But now we have it on a kind of global scale where mm. Russian reserves. And you know, that's gonna have also implications for other countries. Now, China looking at the situation and holding huge amounts of money in for in US dollars, huge amounts of its reserves in US dollars, it's gonna be looking at this, this situation. And I don't think it's I don't think they will be keen on increasing its foreign reserves. Mm. Probably most countries are more likely to sell its uh, US dollar holdings. So which would also create, an inf it would lead to deflation of uh, inflation in the Western countries in the United States. And it could potentially mean the end of a kind of economic system and the US dollar. 
I think you know, maybe I'm being alarmist, maybe it's not going to happen, but I think there's a lot of kind of worrying signs and a lot of things that we thought were impossible one or two years ago are happening. Mm. And I mean, yeah, so you, I, I think there's a lot of yeah, potential risk happening and it obviously has a lot of implications for Bitcoin. So yeah, I just wanted to share, get your guys' thoughts about yeah. this situation. Yeah, I mean, I think, we you know, we did the episode about the Canadian bank run and at the time, um, and the, the, you know, the essentially the seizure of assets of, of Canadian citizens. At the time, that felt to me quite extreme. Mm. And now this has escalated to a central yeah. bank has had their assets seized, which yeah. I didn't even think about how that actually works. But it's basically just the same yeah. situation, right? They're just yeah. bigger banks. Um, but then on top of that, you've got Visa, MasterCard and PayPal have um, stops, uh, are going to stop all their transactions within Russia. So that means if you have a Russian Visa, it doesn't work anywhere in the world. And it also means a Russian FPOS machine is not going to work in Russia. Um, I think it was like 75 plus percent of transactions just through Visa and MasterCard. That's right. So they've lost their their foreign currency reserves. Mm. They've lost their payment rails internally. Mm. Um, they do have a lot of gold. Mm. They have a lot of gold bullion in a vault, mm. but that's not going to power your economy. You can't just mm. take kilo gold bars mm. around to do your transactions. Mm. Um, interestingly as well, Coinbase has sanctioned um, some Russian customers. And at the same time, Metamask, which is a, a crypto wallet, has sanctioned some customers as well, so include Iranian customers mm. and accidentally Venezuelan customers. So you're basically looking at all of these systems, the fiat system, the crypto system, you can see that there, there's a trust uh, level of trust required for all those systems. And what they're showing is that mm. um, if they feel like it, they can turn people off. So the only solution, I mean, obviously, this is a Bitcoin podcast, but the only solution that is actually standing up in this situation is Bitcoin, because mm. you've got the store value and you've got the payment rails. Yeah. Um, I think the big question really is about China because they've got over three trillion dollars of U.S. assets. Mm. Um, I think just in currency. You know, if they were to go and take Taiwan, like they're obviously yeah. very strategic. Um, I don't think they would do that before thinking about what they do with their the Pro U.S. dollar assets. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Probably the first thing would yeah. be to sell their assets. Yeah, and, and you kind of think. I think Russia's been planning for this for a while, and they've over time, like in about maybe a decade or slightly less reduce their US Treasury holdings mm. from, you know, a fairly large amount to basically zero. Mm. I don't think there is a decade now mm. for the countries to make their next move. Mm. I think it's going to happen very quickly. Very quickly yeah. So you could see a situation where, I mean, potentially China and Russia could come out with a gold-backed currency. That's yeah. one option. Yeah. Or they just dump all the US, you know, countries like Venezuela might do it as well, dump yeah. the US dollar yeah. assets at the same time. So can I just uh, interrupt you quickly? But uh, I just had but apparently, the, I think it was the Russian finance minister says they're planning to create some kind of global digital currency, one global digital currency. So, so I think the the important lesson for me is that to get out of the system, you have to do it before all this happens. Because yeah. the only other really escape valve mm -hmm. is cash. Yeah. But I believe that the biggest bank has limited cash withdrawals to, is it $20 or yeah, some yeah. tiny amount? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, cash and Bitcoin are... Um, you can't, you know, you, they're essentially trustless. Mm. So you can uh, interact peer to peer. But if they block cash uh, after all these sanctions are in place, it's too late. Mm. Mm. So I think it's it's so important. I think you know people have we've been talking about this, this type of message for a long time around self custody and you know having your insurance. But now it's becoming I think more real. Mm. And you know, would it happen in Australia? Hopefully not. But I think it is important to have something in place as a precaution against something like this happening. And also important to remember. Australia has something like 60% of our central bank reserves as US dollar assets. Mm. Mm. So if the US dollar or any of the fiat currencies does collapse, 
it's going to affect all of us as well. Absolutely. The global reserves are 59% US dollars, which is a, an incredible amount. Yeah. And that's like held by the IMF. So it, it affects all currencies just based on the US currency. The last point that you touched on there, which was about you know citizens not being able to take out their cash from the bank, because a lot of the news has been around the Central Bank of Russia's assets being frozen by the American Central Bank. However, it also impacts on citizens. So private banks in Russia as well are now setting limitations, which means if anyone does decide that they want to, say, put their finance in Bitcoin or escape with Bitcoin, it's going to be very difficult and they'll be limited to a large extent in terms of how much they can actually do that. And a lot of their savings is going to be staying in the bank um, for whatever purpose, who knows, we'll have to wait and see. And although this seems unprecedented, the similar thing happened in Afghanistan once the American troops withdrew just very recently. It feels like that was a long time ago, but that was only a few months ago. So there was $7 billion the Afghan Central Bank had held in the New York Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve has frozen that amount. 3.5 billion, they haven't decided what to do with yet, but the other 3.5 billion they're put into an American controlled trust with the intention to help the Afghani people. However, we've seen before, uh, Saifuddin calls foreign aid more like the misery company because it's very rarely aid to the foreign countries. It's actually more like um, kind of patronage to your own country. So you go to a foreign country that needs aid and you say, we'll help you out, but you've got to sign contracts with our own private contractors. Um, we've got to build the bridges or the banks or the whatever it is that we want. We've got to employ certain people over here that are our people. So that 3.5 billion that's been set aside to help the Afghani people it is quite likely going to be reappropriated into uh, US bank accounts to some degree, whether they're private um, or public. And so it's, it's unfortunate because you, we can see like, the financial system being weaponized from the level of central banks all the way down to payment processes like PayPal, Visa, MasterCard. And given that we've seen this happen now three times in the last, say, three to six months, you can probably assume, although past behavior is not a best predictor of future behavior, it's it's a pretty good ballpark of, of what might be coming down the track. And so it's it's good to have a plan now rather than when something like that happens. Yeah, yeah, I yeah I agree. And uh, yet yeah, I was just speaking to this Russian um, citizen who works with us and who lives in Australia, and I was speaking with him and uh, going on what you said, Justin, about preparing early, like asking about the situation in Russia, and obviously the Russian rubble has dropped in half, and the st stock market is crashing also so a lot of people have lost their wealth and he said that you know of the people who from back in russia who know bitcoin like we're buying it there's a two there's almost a 50 percent premium on bitcoin in russia mm. but the people who don't know how to do it like they're trying to learn some of them are trying to learn but a lot of them don't know how to do it don't have that option so it's you know you want to prepare early you want to understand that stuff so when shit hits the fan, mm. you're, already, you're already prepared and you know how to deal with it. Yeah, that is a really good point because I think some of us who've been in it for a while, you forget that learning process yeah. and like the first time you do it, like being scared to like do a transaction yeah. and yeah. set up, you know, order the hardware well, let's set yeah. it up, you yeah. know, think about where, how you're going to do your backup. Um, so yeah, starting that process early is important. I just wanted to come back to, you know, we talked about in the Canadian bank run around fractional reserve banking and how it works. Mm. The base of that system is the central bank. So if the central bank loses its assets, the whole system is interrelated to that and yeah. it, it topples over. So I, I feel for the, the Russian people because essentially like 
that whole system has just imploded until mm. unless it gets released again. That's right. And you, the media will often focus on sanctions being a productive thing or a moral thing because someone high up or a group of people high up have made a decision to invade another country. And you could that's arguably true. However, it's unfortunate because then there are all the other citizens, which are what 99% of that country, that then get negatively impacted as well by these sanctions, as well as the decisions that, say, Russian banks, central banks or private make um, as a result of those sanctions. Yeah, yeah. And uh, getting to the politics, I, I don't want to get too into politics, but I did ask uh, the Russian person who does, his name is Vadim, asked him, Vadim, does he think actually the sanctions are increasing support for Putin and the Russian government or not? And he actually believes actually increasing support, like it's telling people when they're getting sanctioned, even people who are opposed to the war are kind of unhappy about these sanctions mm -hmm. and it's kind of creating resentment against the West. So that was his, his take. That makes a lot of sense. You know, if someone feels backed into a corner psychologically, they are more likely to then look to their in-group. So the people that speak the same language or live in the same neighborhood or share the same flag. And they'll say, well, how do we band together to fight this enemy that's now, you know, backed us into mm -hmm. this corner? Even though, you know, maybe a week ago, those same people were saying we shouldn't be fighting this war. Mm -hmm. How do we get this to stop? So it's a bit of in-out social psychology where people are, are more likely to yeah, hang with who they know, um, even if it goes against what they would have felt previously because they've been backed into that corner. The other um, thing we, we talked a bit about was inflation. Um, and Daniel mentioned, he said the price of oil was 300. I think it could get there. It's not quite 300 okay, yet. Yeah. It's about one, 125 oh, a barrel. In Australian dollars. I think Daniel might have been mentioning. No, I don't think it's quite that high, but it's it's going to get higher, unfortunately. But the prices of, uh, for example, wheat are taking off, mm. um, and Russia produces a lot of um, fertilizer, and there's just like you know supply chain disruptions. For example, Ukraine um, plants a lot of uh, supplies a lot of the world's wheat as well. They probably won't have a planting season coming up in March because there's a, obviously a war there. So everyone's going to feel the pain there, and. As you sort of mentioned, the only tool the governments have really is to um, provide more, you know, subsidies for the poorer people so they can afford food. How are they yeah. going to do that? Print money. That's right. You know, there's just this everywhere you look, it's like, okay, they're going to have to print money to solve this problem. Mm. You can kind of, I think we'll look back on this time in 20 or 50 years and go, okay, this was a pivotal moment. That's right. Start so, of so about the, oh, you, I, I think you're right. I I misread, but I think the quote was somebody said that oil price could, re could yeah, reach I think 300, that's, 300 that's possible. The all-time high is 147, yeah. but that's not inflation, inflation yeah. adjusted. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The point that, um, that I want to come back to was uh, Jerome Powell, who's the head of the Federal Reserve in America, um, they've been teasing that they're going to raise interest rates over part of last year and this year, and there's been various reasons why they haven't, because of COVID, because of uh, supply chain issues, and raising of the rates is... Um, attempting to bring down the inflation level. And so at a very recent, this is in the last couple of weeks, um, they've mentioned that they won't be able to raise rates as expected because of the war uh, between Russia and the Ukraine. That means that inflation will still keep running hot for a while. In fact, they will quite likely need to, to print more money to, to support and, and do whatever they need to do in this regard and to manage the fallout. But that means more inflation. Something else that Jerome Powell mentioned there, which is probably unprecedented, is that he admitted that there could be more than one global reserve currency, whereas in the past, the US has done everything they can in terms of messaging and signaling to make it really clear that there is only one global reserve currency and um, everyone benefits from that, even though it's the American dollar. Whereas now they're backpedaling to say there could be possible to have more than one. 
And so to me, that shows a weakening of the US dollar and anyone holding the US dollar, assuming that it's going to be the thing that survives, I would be thinking twice about that. And I imagine China, if they're holding $3 trillion of treasuries or US treasuries, they're probably rethinking that too, especially if they're now seeing, you know, cracks in the system and that the US dollar might not be there, you know, in the long term or might not be the dominant one in the long term. Yeah, that was a staggering announcement. And you think, you know, mm. wars have been fought to, to protect that position. Yeah. The other thing that, you know, I was just thinking about as well is normally when you pay for insurance, you put away, you know, like a, a small percentage and it costs you and you don't sort of ever claim on it. But this is a rare time because you've got inflation and this uncertainty where insurance, and it doesn't have to be Bitcoin, it could be physical gold or silver, will actually make you money because mm -hmm. <laughs> you you you're going to protect your purchasing power while also having a self-custody asset. So it's a rare opportunity to actually, um, you know, just put the time in um, to become, you know, have some sort of self-custody portion of your of your assets where you're actually going to protect your purchasing power and actually make money because pretty soon I think a lot of people are going to be rushing into this type of asset. You know, gold is, is starting to get near back to its all-time highs mm. near the 2000 mark. So, um, yeah, you want to be in these assets before everyone else does. Something that is tangential to this but related is just the way the Bitcoin price has performed during this time. So, this would fit the thesis of Bitcoin for Bitcoin's price to go sideways or even to, to raise. And that's essentially what it's done. Um, we've had a recent pump in price. Um, the price has retraced a bit. But if you look back over the last few weeks and, and probably even the last month or two, the price has gone relatively sideways. And so if it was a, a risk on asset, you would assume that there would be uh, more selling pressure. You would assume that there'd be more you know, decrease in price. So the fact that Bitcoin's performing very well under these pretty... Uh, uncertain times, whether it's to do with the, the war in Russia and Ukraine, whether it's to do with, again, you know, the pandemic or supply chain issues um, or even risks of raising rates um, from the Federal Reserve. Bitcoin has performed incredibly well during that time, which is really what you would expect. But it's still good to have that thesis tested out. Any final points on the, the situation over there? No, it's something we have to watch very closely. It's every day, every week, there's some pretty major news and yeah, just making sure that you kind of everyone's kind of thinking about it and you know self-custing their own assets that's the key here that's right and, and you know focus on the assets that you are able to self-custody that are permissionless and that are censorship resistant because although the official ukraine twitter account was looking for bitcoin ethereum and usdt donations the, the news that jeremy mentioned a little bit earlier about both iran and venezuela being blocked by metamask um, that's something that's worth considering because donating in Ethereum or receiving donations in Ethereum is something that maybe that's not going to be possible in the future. Maybe it's not going to be possible to spend those funds or, or transfer them to something else because they are centralized. They do have the ability to be you know, shut down, frozen or reorganized, whereas Bitcoin does not. So when looking at self-sovereignty, it's useful to think of the assets that are properly decentralized. Yeah, so right. far, this is a great test to see that, that Bitcoin is that one. Yeah, right. And there is some concern from some people who are anti-cryptocurrency in the United States, like Senator Warren, mm. about that digital currencies will be used to evade sanctions. And if a situation like this where the, government, the US government does try to kind of crack down on crypto used to evade sanctions, Bitcoin being the most decentralized, it can't really be controlled by the, the way the other currencies can. So that's, that would kind of, that shows it's kind of use case, you know, sure. it, it can be stopped. It, the government can half and path and maybe it, it can make it harder to use, but can't stop it. 
and it probably can stop some of the other digital currencies which are much more centralized it can control them very true yeah i guess one other final point no, when we put out the article about inflation last year we mentioned this bitcoin is great but you can't eat it so you might want to mm. think about you know maybe stockpiling some food maybe some petrol or diesel if you've got jerry can like it might sound crazy but just having a backup of those things because they are actually assets that store value as well um that could be something that's worth thinking about depending on you know where you live and what sort of um, storage facilities you've got Definitely, it's important to, to look into the future, not just financially, but with the other things that we consume, shelter and food. I guess a final point for me, which again is a bit tangential, but it's a, it's a parallel example, and it's about Cuba. Um, and maybe just riffing off of what Daniel said before about sanctions um, in Russia, there are concerns from some politicians that Bitcoin would be a way to get around those sanctions. And look, there is a bit of truth there. You know, As they say, Bitcoin is for enemies. It's for everyone, including enemies. But what it also means is that the citizens in Russia, which haven't been sanctioned, they are able to get global remittances paid to them from family members or friends or businesses. And, you know, you can see a similar thing with uh, Cuba. So Cuba has sanctions against them and have for quite a long time from the US. However, the US government also encourages people to donate to Cuban entrepreneurs because they are primarily capitalist. But good luck ever sending a bank transfer from a Western bank to Cuba because banks won't touch it because it's very difficult for them to make sure that they are not circumventing any of those sanctions. So legally, financially, it is actually just more profitable for them to block all transactions to Cuba, which means this encouragement of Cuban entrepreneurs and donations to them really is more of a, it's words, but it, it doesn't actually happen. However, with something like Bitcoin, you can make a transaction to a Cuban entrepreneur very easily, just like you could make a transaction to a Russian citizen very easily. And there's no sanctions against Russian citizens. It's against very specific members in, the, say, the Ministry of Defense or the central banks um, or the military. And so although Bitcoin does help the enemies get around sanctions, that's probably less than 1% of the global population. And for the 99% of others, Bitcoin provides a decentralized currency for them to use in the time that they need it most greatly. So it's worthwhile considering Bitcoin's for enemies, but 99% of people using it are probably not our enemies. All right, well, moving on to other global news related to, uh, to adoption and regulation. Thailand is looking at regulating cryptocurrency. They're enabling asset trading in later 2022. And their proposed bill is intended to get more investors and entrepreneurs and projects going that are related to both Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. They were initially considering a tax of 15% capital gains on all cryptocurrency related profits, but they've decided to drop that in this proposed bill, um, again, to, uh, to encourage more use. Okay, so no capital gains tax for digital currency in Thailand, is that, that correct? That's true. It, it's, it's been that way all along, but they were yeah. considering putting in an additional okay. 15%, okay. but have decided to okay. scrap that idea. Um, to tighten up regulations somewhat to protect users from fraud, but overall to still keep it relatively easy. That way they can have yeah, good investment, good entrepreneurs and, and good growth in that area. Mm, okay. So a bit of, bit of bad news, um, although this is probably the 10th lot of bad news from China that we've heard about Bitcoin recently. So um, China's Supreme Court rules that cryptocurrency transactions constitute illegal fundraising. So this ruling paves the way for any violators of this rule, as in so anyone who transacts cryptocurrency, to be criminally prosecuted with a punishment of up to 10 years in prison or fines up to $79,000. And so this is, again, a ban on top of a ban on top of a ban. So my understanding is Bitcoin mining is banned in China, and it's been that way for quite a while. 
they also had banned people not owning Bitcoin, but transacting in Bitcoin. And this sounds like a, a doubling down on that particular law and giving a little bit more detail about what it would mean if you did transact in Bitcoin. Now, I would assume that now means that it's going to be very difficult to buy Bitcoin in China as well, because to me, that constitutes a transaction. So in the past, you could buy Bitcoin, you just couldn't use it. Whereas now it seems like they're saying you can't use it at all. Uh, and if you do, and I found out, you could end up in jail. So uh, uh, to understand this, so it's saying when saying transaction, it's not talking about like just a Bitcoin transaction. It just means we're at like a financial transaction. You can use it to pay somebody for some good. Is that what it's? That's that's true. That's yeah. the, the so like the, I can send a transaction to my friend if I'm donating money or something or no. So I, I can make a, just a transaction to myself. No. So originally the, that that wasn't allowed um, in the, their last lot of laws, and, and this is now just building on those laws to essentially say there are harsh punishments. It's now a criminal activity, uh, which means that you couldn't send a transaction to yourself. You couldn't send a transaction to your friend because it now it is all categorized as illegal fundraising, and that that's not. That's not really out of line in terms of how China's been approaching Bitcoin so far. Um, I think the thing for me that's really unclear is that can you buy and hold Bitcoin and sell it on an exchange? That remains to be seen. The, this news article that I've seen about it doesn't really cover that detail, but it does talk about transactions pretty broadly. Um, and, and maybe that's been done vaguely on purpose. So it yeah. can be applied to whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's not surprising. Like We should expect, mm. especially a state that's so controlling as China, to figure out how to block all the exits from their system. So already they do block the exits of capital in many ways. But um, yeah, once they get rid of cash, which they kind of have anyway, but with mm. CBDCs, then essentially there's no way to get it out into the Bitcoin system. That's but right. that doesn't stop people working for Bitcoin on the black market. True. There's still plenty of ways to get no KYC Bitcoin over there. It's just whether people will take the risk. And I, I agree that this is probably something to do with CBDCs. China has been testing CBDCs in various regions for at least the last year, which means they're probably further ahead than most countries and most central banks in issuing a CBDC, which is a central bank digital currency. Yeah, it also kind of shows that if you're doing something like that, that probably means that actually people are using Bitcoin in some fashion. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> uh, so. again, this, this doesn't seem new news because they already had this ban on transacting in Bitcoin, which makes me think, why have they come out to double down and say it's now you know, uh, criminally prosecutable? To me, that just shows that they're yeah, raising the stakes, but it's the same law as what was previously done. So again, not really a new ban, but new detail on the previous ban. Yeah, and some of these, this stuff, often there's a lot of news coming out of China and it's hard. I would, I would just like over news with a grain of salt because mm. sometimes it's hard to know what's true and what's mm. not. And there's often Western journalists who have no idea what's going on trying to report on so something. So yeah, I would just like make that kind of disclaimer it's hard to actually know what's the reality true and i think that's probably like a really good point to make broadly as well because like bitcoin twitter um and a lot of the bitcoin journalists um something like bitcoin magazine or btc news mm. there's quite a lot of them now and they're becoming more prolific they do have a very western view of things which of course they do that's where their position that's where their epistemology comes from and that's where their sources come from and so sometimes we get a very specific view of the Bitcoin world because mm. that's what we're exposed to the most. But it is, yeah, yeah, useful to, to agree with or to go along with what Daniel said there in terms of take it with a grain of salt, um, wait for like a double and triple and six times confirmation similar to a Bitcoin transaction before you make any uh, big decisions based off of it. But 
still something to watch. Yeah, but I don't think we'll be seeing legal tender Bitcoin in China, though. So it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not surprising news, right, that we're seeing this. Yeah. It seems unlikely. <laughs> So maybe moving on to some more positive news, there's a, a decent list here of uh, adoption news. So the first one, which is probably the biggest one, is Switzerland's city of Laguna has a plan B or a plan Bitcoin. So their intention is to make Bitcoin legal tender. This was unveiled on March the 3rd. And on top of that, they want to incentivize investors, entrepreneurs to move to Laguna and create a Bitcoin business. So I believe from reading their uh, initial proposal that this will include things like um, tax breaks or, or tax benefits for Bitcoin related businesses. A bit of a caveat here is that they are also issuing a stablecoin related to, I believe, the Swiss franc, as well as having a USDT or a US dollar tether. And it's actually tether that is helping uh, Laguna put this into place. But regardless, they'll still have Bitcoin there. They're looking at integrating Lightning and all their proof, uh, sorry, all their uh, point of sale. Regardless of whether they have their own CBDC and a USDT stablecoin, still decent news and still nice to know that they want to become a hub of Bitcoin in the world. I think this is a really big deal, possibly even more so than El Salvador, because mm. it's easy to dismiss El Salvador because it's a small country and it's full of gangs and so on. But in the traditional financial world to hear that Switzerland, where, you know, the, the place of Swiss banks, mm. the city there is making it legal tender, that's a big deal because mm. it's not that hard from it to go from there to another city to another city and, you know, um, I think this is a huge step forward for Bitcoin. In Switzerland, they understand hard money. They were one of the last countries to come off of a gold standard and, and probably didn't do it by choice. This is me speculating, of mm. course, but if the rest of the world is doing it and moving to a, a US-backed uh, currency system, it would make a lot of sense for them to eventually have to do the same thing. And so they understand hard money and it makes sense that they're one of the first to then move this direction. Yeah. Another bit of news from Brazil, the Brazil's Senate's Economic Affairs Committee unanimously approved a bill that will regulate Bitcoin. It now needs to go to the Senate proper for a vote. And the intention behind it, again, is to make it clearer for investors, uh, users and exchanges so they can have a little bit, I'd say some more scrutiny in some ways, but less scrutiny in others. And it won't be considered to be like illegal activity. Um, it'll be more acceptable, uh, which will be I think good overall for Bitcoin adoption. And in that, it seemed like they were trying to attract more business, which usually comes with things like tax breaks, um, simplified reporting. So we'll have to wait and see if the Senate votes on that. But given that it was unanimously agreed already, it sounds like it's just rubber stamped and it's now just waiting to be voted on and then put into practice. Also, the state of California proposed law to make Bitcoin legal tender. We talked about a couple of examples uh, similar to this in the last podcast. And I guess I'll just repeat the same um, caveat there is that there is in the US Constitution a clause that states that except for gold and silver backed currencies, a state cannot issue their own legal tender. That could be challenged um, as a part of this a proposal to make Bitcoin legal tender, or perhaps this is just a bit of posturing to demonstrate that the state of California is interested in Bitcoin and supportive of it. So the state of Colorado passed a law, so this is not a proposal, but it actually is a passed law that is now allowing citizens to pay their taxes in Bitcoin. I don't know if I would be paying taxes in Bitcoin. However, it is nice that the, the government is looking to accept that because to me, that is just one step closer to something like legal tender um, or Bitcoin being accepted for other things. What Sorry, we Jeremy. didn't talk about when we um, were talking about countries is, you know, states have, um, you know, assets. 
yeah. US dollar assets. True. You know, I wonder if some of these states will also be looking at this situation, thinking there's some risk there. So, you think Utah is trying to build up a, some Bitcoin on their balance sheet by, you know, accepting because they don't have to buy it that way. They can just say, uh, "One of the taxes will accept Bitcoin and leave that on our balance sheet." That's right. Yeah, because Utah is doing that same thing as California. Um, so they've passed legislation um, to allow them to collect taxes in Bitcoin. And it would make sense, you know, America, their states, as they're a republic, they are, there is a bit of animosity sometimes between yeah. them, um, and especially between states and the federal government. So I would assume any state, say governor um, or politician that can see their state slipping because of the difficulties with balance and the difficulties with the assets that they hold, Bitcoin is making a lot more sense to those people, especially if they're paying attention to the rest of the world and seeing like, the weaponization of of money in the financial systems themselves. Yeah, and um, so apparently also Samson Mao, from formerly from Blockstream, has said that he's uh, he's quit his position at Blockstream, and apparently, what his his next venture is something about helping governments and states uh, with Bitcoin adoption. Mm. I, so I, that seems to be a bit of a trend. Definitely. And I also heard that he was going to run for mayor of Bitcoin City in El Salvador. Okay, okay. So yeah. maybe he does that as a part of his role yeah. of mayor of Bitcoin City as he goes out and okay. tries to becomes yeah. an ambassador for Bitcoin to other countries. It sounded like there was a bit of a like, double news in there, which is yeah, really Hopefully cool. he doesn't launch a coup against the current president. Hopefully, <laughs> yes. South American style. Exactly. Who's going to be the El Presidente of El Salvador. Yeah. <laughs> that would be interesting news. Well, we'll get to some El Salvador news in just a bit, but I'll throw out this last one from America. So the state of Georgia, as well as the state of Illinois, propose laws to give tax break to Bitcoin miners. So all they want to do is attract more miners to their uh, states. They would probably have surpluses of energy, both green and otherwise. And they're looking at um, getting more miners on board and making it attractive for them. And so, yeah, moving on to El Salvador. So they seem to be thriving on their Bitcoin standard. Uh, President Bukele came out very recently and mentioned that tourism is up 30%. Um, for the first time, they have reached double-digit GDP, which is 10.3% in 2021. And given that tourism is one of their main, uh, I guess, imports or exports, sorry, you could say, is they're expecting that that double-digit um, GDP will continue into this year. Uh, and in fact, there was another report that as of January, so the stat that I just gave was as of last year, but the stat in uh, January year on year is 13% GDP. So not only are they reaching double digits, but it's still increasing from there. He also mentioned that foreign investment is at an all-time high. Crime and gang violence and murder rate are down and decreasing. And uh, there seems to be more optimism with the nation's youth. Now, look, some of those things, again, we need to take with a grain of salt because it would make a lot of sense for President Bukele to be announcing those things yes. because it all backs his original play. Yeah. Um, however, numbers like the GDP, uh, tourism increases and foreign investment isn't something that can probably be you know, obfuscated or hidden or lied about for very long. So I, I kind of take those things as being honest. And then it's more about, well, is crime down? Um, are the nation's youth really much more optimistic? Those are the things that we'll have to wait and see on. But either way, it sounds like they're doing well on the Bitcoin standard. So another news, uh, which moves a bit away from currency, uh, sorry, country adoption of Bitcoin as currency or, or um, wars and, and all the other global news is more about Bitcoin mining. So Intel, uh, which is obviously very big in the technology and, and computing space, has decided to get into Bitcoin mining and release their own what's called a Bonanza Mine chip, which is basically you, you get a bunch of these chips 
and uh, you put it together with some other hardware and you create an ASIC miner, which is the, the type of uh, mining hardware that is used predominantly to mine Bitcoin. Now, their first version of this is relatively underpowered. So for anyone who's into mining will know that it does 40 terahash per second, but it's at 3,600 watts. Mm. Now, usually you would be having about 3,200 watts for about 110 terahash with say um, an S19 or an S19 Pro. So they're very, very underpowered, the Intel miners at the moment. However, they have mentioned that there'll be another chip coming out later this year, which looks at um, doubling or even tripling the terahash to something up to uh, 120, while also reducing the amount of kilowatts used by up to half. We'll have to wait and see because sometimes those claims don't come to fruition, but it certainly seems like they're moving forward and have an intention to be a, you know, an integral part of Bitcoin mining. Shortly after that announcement and demonstration of their original Bonanza mine ASIC miner, the one that's not that efficient, um, they also announced that there's already a lot of large customers that have secured their pre-order of both that and the miner that's coming out later this year, the more efficient one. So those companies were Block, which is previously called Square. It's also Argo Blockchain uh, and Grid, which are all Bitcoin miners, or at least getting into Bitcoin mining. So do you know where they make it? Where they make it? Yeah. It would. I'm not sure, to be honest, actually. That, that's probably a good point. Um, I know a lot of their manufacturing is in the US, and so it's quite possible that this is a good way to decentralize production of, yeah. of Bitcoin miners, and particularly the, uh, the the chips that are used to power the Bitcoin miners. Because yeah, even if they're not competitive currently, it's an alternative source geographically. But if you have surplus power, um, you, sometimes you don't care about the price. Like you, True. If you can get access to a machine and you can put it on and the power's free, then efficiency is less of a concern. The price and the access is, you know, if there's no waiting list for that, then, you know, it's, it's kind of a good addition. And, that's yeah. right. And that, that's probably exactly why the S9s are still considered to be the largest workhorse of the uh, the Bitcoin hash rate, even though S9s are, from my understanding, not as efficient as, say, an S19. But when you're getting surplus, stranded or wasted energy that is relatively cheap and sometimes free, running S9s still makes a whole lot of sense, just like running this um, slightly less efficient Intel initial miner. So as a final bit of news here, which is Australian news, an article came out from Business Insider that stated that Australian middle income earners are now locked out of around 70% of properties across Australia. And major political parties, so Labor, Liberal and Greens, have all promised that they will solve the housing crisis if they win the next election. I'm, I have two main points here. One is that if 70% of middle income earners are now locked out of property because of the raising prices, what does that mean for the low income earners? Mm. I'm assuming that means 100% of those are now locked out, which is incredible. It means no one in a low income bracket will own property forever, perhaps. And it seems outrageous to say that because there's these promises from political parties that they'll be able to solve everything. However, I'm not sure how they would solve it when it seems to be that part of the way that they manage money has led us to this point, which is expansion of the monetary supply, um, people seeking out hard assets, perhaps like property, and then therefore the asset prices inflate. So I'm, I'm curious, like, do we have any ideas of what the government could actually do here? Like, do they just provide a subsidy for properties? Um, do they try to fix prices? Do they print more money to give welfare so people can afford houses? But in my mind, doesn't that just make the situation worse because people are able to buy more houses and push the price up more? Yeah, I, I think it's just clustering because, you know, like they could do things like, say, increase the land available to build on mm. uh, and maybe subsidize building. But you've got to get tradies to do the building, you've got to buy the building materials. True. Um, you need energy to make all those materials. 
Like they, they can't control those things. Um, right. So there's going to be constraints on what you can build. Obviously, like they can't, if um, they will be considering as well, if they try to make property cheaper, that will impact negatively a lot of the population who won't agree with that. I think they're going to talk about it. I can't really see what they could do. I was also hearing a stat, something like the, if you earn the median income, you, you can't get a loan big enough to buy the median house. Gotcha. You know, like it's the, the people who are not able to get into the property market. It is a real, a real problem. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I don't think there's this, there's definitely not a way they're not going to change the monetary system. So I can't really see a way unless maybe it's rent assistance or something, but again, that's more, more subsidies, more printing of money. Exactly. Yeah. The more you subsidize, the more you push prices up. And unfortunately, it, uh, it kind of seems like a runaway train to me to some degree where we, we can't do more of the same to try to solve the problem that came from more of the same. Yeah. I mean, the scary thing that I saw was in American, it was American capital cities, rents went up 20% year on year, mm. 20%. Um, so that's now affecting people who haven't even bought a house. Like, exactly. where do they go from there? And it's a lot of this becomes a psychological thing. You know, the way markets move, there are fundamentals, of course. But if people think that there's going to be... People know that there is a shortage of properties, not even think that there's going to be, but they know there's a shortage of properties and that people are becoming more and more unaffordable. The people with the money that can afford houses will likely be considering houses as a great long-term investment because we, psychologically speaking, go towards scarcity, go towards things that other people want that we think might hold their value in the long term. Property's definitely proven that over time. And if we're now getting signaling from government and media that it's going to continue and it's at the worst state it's ever been. That would make sense to me for property investors to double down and invest in more property, mm. um, even just from that psychological driver to do it, um, regardless of the fundamentals that will keep pushing prices up as well, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, the only thing they could really do is lower the deposit uh, requirement even more. Yeah. So it was 10. Now you can get them for five. Maybe they make it two and a half or two or one percent. That's so right. It, just, it gets just more leverage. True. Yeah. Well, exactly. And if you look at the uh, the collapse in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, yeah. that was related to something similar, wasn't it? In America, where you know mortgages just being given out to people that couldn't really afford them, and that was fine for a few years until it, it kind of came crashing yeah. down. And then you suppress the interest rates even more so that people can afford those bigger and bigger loans. That's yeah. it. But I mean, but just gonna That's push exactly, prices exacerbates yeah. the problem. Mm. Just yeah. It's not a long-term solution, it just, yeah. And look, not financial advice, but to me, it makes sense to look for hard assets that don't have such a high buy-in price. So you can buy a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a Bitcoin, even if it's only a dollar that you put in or $5 or $10 and do that regularly to build up, you can do that. Whereas that's much more difficult to do with property because you need to save the deposit first. And now that we know that most people can't save the deposit mm -hmm. for it, it would make sense to be saving in something like Bitcoin instead, which doesn't have any maintenance cost or carry costs. It's easier to secure. There's no tax on it by holding it. Whereas all those things apply to property. So it would make sense to be looking at something like Bitcoin as an alternative to property, or at least as a vehicle to help to save towards property in future. Yeah, I mean, the, a residential property does have a lot of tax benefits and it's secure and you're sitting on land and you can leverage it. That's the big thing. Mm. That's, you know, it's really unsafe to leverage Bitcoin. But if you, True. yeah, definitely Bitcoin will outperform property given enough time. Any other news, any other final comments before we finish up? Yeah, there was, that's, <laughs> plenty, that's plenty for, a, for an episode. Like it's, I think this will be one of those moments this, this month where we look back and kids are starting in 50 years. That's right. You know, when Russia invaded Ukraine, it was like, you know, Franz Ferdinand being killed in the mm. World War One. It's true. It'll, 
And I mean, I guess it'll seem like the catalyst won't it, but we know that this has been brewing for a while. Yes. If you, you spent enough time on Bitcoin Twitter or read enough Bitcoin uh, news articles, you'll you'll hear people predicting something along these lines as far back as you know 13 years ago. Now, not predicting war as such, but predicting the economic collapse of either hyperinflation or uh, a debt default and collapse. And it looks like we've got those two pathways ahead of us, regardless of the uh, the narrative of, of what's actually causing it or fueling it. So. And a comment that you made much earlier on, Jeremy, that this is probably going to be an expedited process. This is not likely to be something that plays out over the next 10, 20, 50 years. This might be something that plays out over the next few months or the next just couple of years. You have to see. Definitely. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, Please like, share and subscribe if you enjoy the content. And let us know in the comments or reach out to us on Twitter, hardblockbtc. That's all one word, hardblockbtc. If you have any kind of feedback or content requests, Thanks again, and until next time. Yep. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Thank you, guys. Thanks, sir.